Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of The Populist. This is Kevin O'Hare. So before getting into this week's podcast, I just want to talk about a couple things. Um, <clears throat> the grades for Unit 3, for the Unit 3 writing assignment, and the Unit 3 discussion forums will be online by the end of the week. Okay, so make sure you check those out. Um, also remember that you need to do either the ass- writing assignment 3 or writing assignment 4. Don't do both because lowest grades will not be dropped and you'll have wasted a lot of time writing both papers to only get one of them graded. Okay, so in the end you should have done either writing assignment 1 or writing assignment 2 and then either writing assignment 3 or writing assignment 4. Okay, now if you do writing assignment 4, please note that it is due Monday, December 2nd at 11.59. This is the weekend of of Thanksgiving. Okay, so there's an extra day to get that finished up just because people might be traveling and might be going out of town. All right. Also, I've posted the final paper assignment on Canvas. Remember, it's worth 20% of your grade. There's a lot of detail in that regarding the instructions and the question itself. So make sure you take a look at that earlier rather than later. And also take a look at the rubric to make sure you know what you must do in order to receive the most points possible. And in order to answer this, you're going to need stuff, uh, material from both Units 3 and Units 4. Okay, so... It's going to ask you to take that knowledge that we've learned over the previous three weeks and the stuff we're learning in Unit 4, which starts today, um, and to combine that to answer the question. Okay, so it's really a chance to, to show that you understand differences and expectations of the theories we've talked about regarding democracy and authoritarian regimes. Okay, and so without further ado, here is episode 12 of The Populist. Welcome to episode 12 of The Populist, and in this episode we are going to talk about authoritarian regimes. So the last few weeks we've talked about democracy and its institutions, but along the way kind of the the book has talked a little bit about how the institutions in authoritarian regimes, you know, are in some ways similar to democratic institutions. You know, some authoritarian regimes have um, legislatures and they've got executives for sure. And some even have the judicial branches. So, so let's dig into this a little bit more, a little, get into the nitty gritty of authoritarian regimes. So the way this podcast is going to go is first, we're going to talk about defining authoritarian regimes. So what are they? How do we know it when we see it? And then the different types of authoritarian regimes, because they vary greatly and there are different characteristics of each authoritarian regime, but we can put them into a typology. And then lastly, we'll talk about transitions to authoritarian regimes. Even though authoritarian regimes generally have been the the main type of government that the world has seen, we're going to talk about transitions to them and how that, that plays into regime type. Okay, so 
So to start off here, we're going to talk about defining authoritarian regimes. And one easy way that may or may not be entirely correct is to define authoritarian regimes as a political regime that is non-democratic. So defining it by what it's not. Um, This can be defined as the opposite of democracy, but we have to remember that authoritarian regimes have their own characteristics. Just defining it as not democracy. I mean, we saw how messy it is to try and define democracy. Um, so, so we need to look a little bit more into this. So there's a lot of variation in authoritarian regimes. I mean, they can be personalistic where it relies on the individual and the individual is that kind of at the center of that regime. I mean, you want to think of people like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, or even Caligula in Rome. Now, even though these people were at the center of these regimes, they still relied on other institutions to main power. A lot of times they still have political parties, they've got militaries, they've got secret police. So they can be personalistic, but there are other things that go with that. They also can have a ruling elite that makes the decision. So this can be a clique or a junta or a bureaucracy that make all of the decisions. And oftentimes they can have an overarching ideology. This we've seen as communism, you know, in the the former Soviet Union, uh, or fascism, as we saw in Italy before World War II, Uh, Nazi Germany, obviously, Um, Spain under Franco. So there can be this overarching ideology that is a characteristic of these authoritarian regimes. And also these authoritarian regimes will vary in the extent and ways that they constrain or outright violate human rights. So all authoritarian regimes today violate some basic human rights, whether that is political freedoms, who can participate and who can partake in making political decisions, the right to self-determination, or you know, this might be violated and you are cut off from certain paths to take in your life to where you're not in control. Okay, so they vary in all of these different ways. But what exactly are the specific types that have been classified, the types of authoritarian regimes? And maybe the most famous and the ones that we think of right off the top of our head are totalitarian regimes. And these regimes, they aim to control everything about the lives of its subject population. All right, now this is very different from most other regimes. And this is not super common because characteristics of totalitarian regimes are that they deny civil rights to citizens. There are no free and fair elections, but it goes a lot further than this. It's usually done through the propagation or the putting forth and enforcement of an official governing ideology that people are expected to conform to all the time. And in these regimes, you they will go to great lengths to prohibit freedom of thought and uh, and consciousness. 
Okay, so they, they they will use secret police, spies, informants. I mean, so so these totalitarian regimes. You're talking about Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union. Um, today, the best example would probably be North Korea, and we we see the characteristics of these played out when we look at at those regimes, denying civil rights. Don't hold free and fair elections. Uh, the official ideology, Nazism, communism, fascism, um, using secret police, you know, the, the SS, the Stasi, certain spies, getting informants to uh, report suspected dissidents. So, I mean, this is where the, the stories of neighbors turning in neighbors for the wrong thoughts and the wrong ideas floating around in their heads. So in these totalitarian regimes, there's also usually one official official governing party. All right, whether it's the Nazi Party in uh, Nazi Germany or the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, there's usually one official governing party. And it's usually led by a dominant figure that is the subject of hero worship or a cult of personality. So, you know, Hitler, Stalin, Kim Jong-un. The, these people have this this type of hero worship around them or cult of personality that is larger than life. And another characteristic of these totalitarian regimes is that they usually have state control of the economy. And they want to do this because it prevents private individuals or private companies from building enough wealth to challenge the state or even make demands of the state. It keeps everybody subservient to that regime. Now, other characteristics of of totalitarian regimes is the use of prison camps, work camps, and mass executions. Again, This is a common theme through especially Nazi Germany and especially the Soviet Union um, and definitely in uh, North Korea today. And these are used to re-educate society and eliminate supposedly undesirable elements, especially ethnic minorities. I mean, just think of Nazi Germany. You know, not only did they seek to eradicate the Jewish population, but they went to eradicate or to to get rid of any of the gypsies or homosexuals or anybody they viewed as a deviant or as undesirable, okay, kind of trying to purify their society, okay, so... All of these characteristics, and I'll run through them really quick, denying civil rights to citizens, not holding free and fair elections, um, having an official ideology, enforcing that through like secret police and spies and informants, one official governing party, usually led by a dominant figure, state control of the economy, and the use of prison camps, work camps, and mass executions. Those are the characteristics of a totalitarian authoritarian state. And this is probably the most famous because of just the awful things that have happened under these regimes. But this is not a super common form of authoritarianism. All right. So so in moving on to the next type of authoritarian regime, it is uh, theocracy. 
All right, so this is simply an authoritarian state controlled by religious leaders. Or it can be a state with very strict religious restrictions. And what they do is they use religion as the main mode of legitimation. So the rulers get their legitimacy through the religion. And if we go back in time, many of the monarchies in Western Europe were theocratic. All right. I mean, think of the divine right to rule that was put forth by kings and queens as the way that they derived their legitimacy. Today, good examples would be Saudi Arabia and Iran. Okay, although that they they definitely would fall under theocracy, um, but as you know, you read some stuff about about Iran. They've you know some people questioning how stable that theocracy is, but it still falls under this classification. All right, the next group of authoritarian regimes are what we refer to as personalistic dictatorships. So this is a form of authoritarianism in which the personality of the dictator is emphasized. And they're held up. This kind of goes along with the the totalitarian regime and the being led by one dominant figure that is the dominant figure that is the hero worship or cult of personality or thought of as as a god on earth and so the individual will concentrate their power and they kind of govern they don't kind of they govern as they see fit now this can also be called autocracy despotism dictatorship or tyranny the only issue with using these terms is that these are not always ruled by one person you can have a tyranny that is run by a group of people or um, despotism or autocracy or dictatorship but it doesn't necessarily just have to be one person in the personalistic dictatorship it is this one person who is you know portrayed to the public or even thought of as larger than life and they do things to keep that image going okay so it it focuses really on the individual and one of the issues that comes up with this that we see is when that individual dies which eventually every human being does then what is the line of succession? So it can lead to issues that way, but that's a different story. So we are focusing just on the, the classification, so the personalistic dictatorship. Now, this is also different from a totalitarian state because they usually don't have some kind of overarching ideology that that is really imposed on all of on all of society. Okay. So that would be how a totalitarian state is different. Now, some of these personalistic dictators have tried, um, Assad's father in Syria tried, I mean, and there's a a great book by uh, Lisa Wedeen where she talks about how these, these different structures and the cult of personality played into this and people kind of went along with it, but they all knew it was kind of garbage. All right. They knew that it wasn't real, but they still went along with it. Um, but they didn't buy into the ideology. There wasn't this, it wasn't the same as in a totalitarian state. So some have tried this, but they generally don't succeed. All right. Now some other examples of personalistic dictators, 
are people like Mobutu Sese Seku in Zaire. He ruled Zaire from 1965 to 1997. Zaire is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, there was also in the Central African Republic, uh, Jean Bedel Bokassa. He actually declared himself emperor. So, so the Central African Republic was formerly colonized by um, France. And so you, know, you can look up different uh, videos on, on YouTube and things where you can see his coronation. And I think something like, like the, the throne where he was coronated was something like, I don't know, three meters high. And he basically was trying to make it as much as like Napoleon as possible. All right, so so, but he was portraying himself as this larger than life individual, and then the last example is Idi Amin of Uganda. All right, and you know, there's an interesting History Channel quick little thing online that you can look at showing how he worked his way up and and got in there. But these are all examples of personalistic dictatorships. Okay, so the next type of of authoritarian regime to talk about is what are called bureaucratic authoritarian regimes. And what these are, these are a type of authoritarian regime in which the state is controlled more by a group of elites. And often the military is involved with this. But it's controlled by a group of elites rather than by a single individual leader. So one similarity they share with personalistic dictatorships is the fact that they tend to be less ideological than totalitarian regimes. But they also can be just as brutal. All right, an example of this is the Argent- Argentinian military in the 1970s. They, were, they became famous for torture and methods of execution. And an example of this that's given in your book is they would throw dissidents from a helicopter into the Atlantic Ocean. All right. That, so these methods for execution and different methods for torture, you know, just because a group is ruling doesn't mean it's going to be any less brutal or any less authoritarian. Now, these bureaucratic authoritarian regimes can be left wing or right wing. They don't have to be one side or the other. But the fundamental rationale for their legitimacy is that they are needed to establish order and and or economic progress. So they're saying that we can only reach modernity or a modern society with a strong hand. So we need law and order and we need technical administration. Okay, so kind of technocratic, where you take the politics out of it, and this group knows better than everybody else, and they impose what they think is best on society. Now, where this was commonly found was in the 1960s and 70s in Latin America. Okay, two really good examples of this are Brazil and Argentina. And if we think about the characteristics of the bureaucratic authoritarian regimes, um, and especially this part of modern society can only be achieved through a strong hand and technical administration, it's not too surprising that both Argentina and Brazil tried import substitution industrialization. Okay, so they tried to impose industrialization from the top down by the state 
taking control and you know running the economy and shutting out exports. All right, so these bureaucratic authoritarian regimes, you know, were common in the '60s and '70s in Latin America more than than anywhere else. All right, so the next and actually the final form of authoritarian regimes is a newer class of regime, a newer classification that really we only started to come to grips with in the 1990s. And this is hybrid and semi-authoritarian regimes. So this is a class of regime that is neither fully democratic nor fully authoritarian. All right, so it's got some authoritarian features and it's got some democratic features, but it's not there there's enough violations in the democratic side that it doesn't it you would not classify it as a democratic regime. But it's also not totalitarian, it's not bureaucratic authoritarian, it's not necessarily a personalistic, it's not nice and neat in the authoritarian category. All right, so it's a class of regime that's neither fully democratic nor fully authoritarian. And we, we saw this develop after the third wave of democratization when these international norms of democracy were strong, when there was a lot of pressure on leaders to at least present themselves as democratic. So in order to describe these hybrid regimes or semi-authoritarian regime, there have been a number of concepts that have Put forth, and which one is the best is or the most appropriate is your discussion question for this class section because you these are the three extra readings that are assigned for this week. Okay, but I'm going to run through them quickly to kind of give an overview, but I'm not going to go too in depth because I want the discussion on the discussion board to really try and dig into these and, and you know see if they are different things or if they're all kind of describing the same the same stuff. And so let's get started. The the first one is what is called illiberal democracy. And Fareed Zakaria puts this forth and he describes this as a polity with some democratic features, but where political and civil rights are not always protected. And another main feature of this is that there are reasonably fair, uh, free and fair elections, but there's really not any accountability afterward. Okay, so people get into office and there's not, there's not, I mean, when we talked about uh, democracy with, um, with Dr. Craig Kaufman, he talked about the, the horizontal accountability and vertical accountability, but this is largely missing in the illiberal democracies. Okay, so the next category is delegative democracy, and this is the article by O'Donnell. And he describes this as a hybrid form of regime that is democratic, but it involves the electorate basically delegating most, if not all, of their authority to a government. So people are elected, and then they're not really restrained by laws and institutions. They kind of do what they want. All right, and we talked about this in last week's podcast, where they're going to res- they're going to respect some of the institutions, maybe the uh, oh maybe maybe term limits, or they can't just blatantly disregard what happens in an election. But once they are elected, 
there's very little checks on what they can or can't do. All right. The next form of these these hybrid regimes or semi-authoritarian regimes is electoral authoritarianism. And this is where authoritarian regimes compete in, they compete nominally in elections. So there are elections, but they're not really free and fair. They're not truly competitive. Some people have put Russia in this this category because they still have elections and, you know, Putin still needs to get elected, but the scales are so tipped, so tipped in his favor that, you know, it's, it's, it's not a real election like we think of elections in the West, okay? Or like people in the United States or Europe think of elections or in many other places. Um, so the very last of these types of, of, semi-authoritarian or hybrid regimes is competitive authoritarian. And this is, you'll read about this in the article from Levitsky and Way. And they, they describe this as a form of government or regime that allows for some political competition, but not enough to be fully democratic. All right. And he talks about, they, t- they talk about this in their, um, in the article, but there's also the video. So make sure that you, you're watching that as well. So the last part of this podcast, we're going to talk about uh, the types of transitions to authoritarianism. Now, before we get into the specifics of that, it's worth noting uh, this concept of authoritarian persistence. So some authoritarian states endure and don't move towards democracy, and they're able to be to maintain stability and remain authoritarian. And examples would be Cuba, China, and North Korea. And how they survive and endure, we're going to talk about in much more detail next week, but it's just important to note at the the outset of this. So the first type of transition to authoritarianism happens when democracies break down. So you get democratic breakdown. And this is when a democratic regime collapses, decays, or transitions to an authoritarian regime. And good examples of this are the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 1930s. It became Nazi Germany. The Allende government in Chile in in 1970, it became the Pinochet dictatorship. So here are examples of democracies decaying or crumbling and becoming authoritarian regimes. Now, how this exactly happens is diverse and complex. I mean, think back to all of the stuff about how a, how a country or a state transitions to a democracy and how messy that is. This is just as messy. So the first way that it can it can happen is kind of through fits and starts where gradually there's chipping away of democracy. There's partial losses of freedom. You know, where, where people, you know, they there's discrimination or there's exclusion from the political process. There can be elections that are suspect and questionable, even though there's still political participation. Okay, but it, it's this gradual chipping away. And the book gives the, the example of Maduro in Venezuela and how this has, has happened to where Venezuela still had or still has elections, but you know, the, the political freedoms and and these elections, the the stuff that's that made it democratic is kind of being chipped been chipped away at. 
All right, so it can happen gradually, or it can happen through something like a coup d'etat or overthrow of a democratic regime. Or what can happen is a democratically elected leader declares some kind of state of emergency or martial law. And this tends to happen more in developing countries. So it can happen gradually, as I mentioned before, or it can be done very quickly. Okay. Now, just because democratic breakdown begins doesn't necessarily mean that it will be the end of the regime. All right, so a good example, and your book points this out, is Ukraine in 2004. So there was an obvious fraudulent and manipulated election, and everybody knew this. And, it, you know, the, the election results were not um, authentic. They were not validated. And hundreds of thousands of people went to the streets to protest this fraudulent election. So... Instead of the election just being stolen and the slide towards authoritarianism continuing, people kind of took it in their own hands and stopped it. But now what that's left Ukraine with is kind of this hybrid regime. They're, they're in that middle ground between democracy and authoritarianism. Okay, but they didn't go full-blown authoritarianism. All right, so it settled in that, that middle ground. And that has happened with a lot of post-Soviet republics that, that became democratic and then have kind of backslid into this, this spot. Now, um, there are other patterns of uh, democratic decay and collapse. So other ways that this can happen. And... You know, the first one is that voters may just elect authoritarians, all right? And they may not actually know that they're, that they're doing this. They may not know that the person they elected is authoritarian, all right? They promise law and order. They promise economic development. They want to end corruption. But they also leave out the part about abolishing parliament and the courts and declaring martial law, all right? So that's one way. So another thing that can happen is that democracies that are not fully consolidated, they just may present citizens with a different set of trade-offs, and at least a different set of trade-offs than those citizens in fully consolidated democracies. All right, so so consider this this scenario. You're you're in a poor democracy. There's high levels of corruption. The rule of law is kind of existent, but not really. And then an authoritarian comes along and promises to fix all of these problems. They want to fix the economy. They're going to clean up the streets. They're going to go after the, those nasty elites that have been using the state money for their own benefit. And they've been putting that money in the, the Cayman Islands or in secret bank accounts, other places. This context is going to change the calculations of the public on what's acceptable or what's desirable. This is a lot different than if you're living in a country that's doing well economically, where people tend to feel like their voices are heard, where corruption isn't very high, or at least it's at an acceptable level because you're just never going to get rid of all corruption. Okay, but, but if you're in this poor democracy with high levels of corruption, the rule of law doesn't really apply. People visibly can see that they're getting the raw end of the deal. It's going to change calculations. Okay, so, so it might, some rational choice scholars might actually argue that, you know, it's in their interest to at least consider this 
to consider that path over democracy. All right, another way that this can happen where you get the transition to authoritarianism or the democratic decay is that organized actors can move to dismantle democracy. They don't like where it's going. They don't have enough power. It could be anything from organized labor striking to middle classes demonstrating, marching, setting up barricades. Businesses can withdraw their capital and go uh, go elsewhere. State bureaucracies can just refuse to comply with the orders of civilian leaders. Um, it, it could happen to where the military moves against the government in a coup d'etat. Now, this is usually anti-democratic as many coups involve the military acting against the civilian government and substituting an authoritarian regime in its place. But the outcomes of coups are really unknown until they're over. I mean, think about the most recent coup attempt in Turkey where the military tried to move against uh, their Prime Minister Erdogan, and it didn't work out for them. And this is different from, say, Portugal in 1974, where they had a coup of mid-level military officers that overthrew their dictatorship, and it led to the Carnation Revolution and the establishment of democracy. So it's, you know, it's always that problem of, of well, what's behind door number two? Okay, it's different from door number one, which is what you currently have, but it's uncertain and you don't know what it's going to be. But these organized actors can move to dismantle democracy, whether it's the military, business, middle class, labor or people in the state bureaucracy. Now, also, there can be revolutions and it can you know, lead to this is kind of the door number two conundrum as well. It can lead to more democracy or it can lead to more concentration of power, um, you know, as we, we saw post-French Revolution, you know, and they thought, oh, we're moving towards democracy. And it just wasn't very long before Napoleon took over and concentrated all of his power and, you know, became emperor and, you know, he was at least claimed to be and, you know, consolidated his power and concentrated his power. Okay, so that's the issue with the the quick transitions. I guess that is worth bringing up is, you know, well, you don't know exactly how it's going to play out. So then there's transitions to hybrid or semi-authoritarian regimes. And this was touched on a little bit talking about Ukraine. But this can come out of either democratic or authoritarian rule. Okay, a democratic or authoritarian regime in the midst of a transition can get stuck in this middle ground. So, you know, this can result as a partial partial democratic breakdown. Okay, so sort of what I was talking about with Ukraine, where they were democracy, but then they backslid, although they settled in that middle ground. And then this can also happen in an authoritarian regime partially democratizing or it tries to implement some superficial reforms to look democratic because there's pressure from international norms and expectations and it it doesn't really make the full move to democracy but it's not 100% authoritarian so it's stuck in that middle ground um, and also make sure to read the examples the book gives on how this could happen on pages 159 to 161. Okay, it goes in, in depth there. All right, so 
recapping this podcast, we went through defining authoritarian regimes and, you know, what are they? And then we went through the different types of authoritarian regimes, you know, everything from totalitarian regimes, theocracies, personalistic dictatorships, bureaucratic authoritarian, and then the hybrid or semi-authoritarian regimes, which have multiple classifications. Then finally, we went through these types of transitions to authoritarianism. Okay, democratic breakdown and how that can happen, decay and collapse, organized actors moving against an existing government, voters electing authoritarians, and then finished with a a brief discussion of transitions to hybrid or semi-authoritarian regimes. All right, now next week, what we're going to get into is talking about persistence in authoritarian regimes, because even though a lot of places like democracy was the hot, cool thing, especially through the 90s, there's a lot of people saying that, you know, democracy is in decline today, but there have also been a number of countries that have been able to resist the move towards democracy. And we'll talk about not only how this persistence happens, but, you know, how these authoritarian regimes emerge as well. So the emergence and persistence. Okay, so, you know, with that in mind, you know, make sure that you're keeping up on the readings. Make sure you're looking ahead to the Unit 4 writing assignment and discussion question. And then also make sure you're looking at the final question, the, the final paper for the class that's due at the end of finals week. But until next time... Have a good one.